0: what or who was jesus as far as you're concerned i think it's the it's a defining question for a christian is who was christ and and i don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or a, you know because actually he went around saying he was the messiah that's why he was crucified he was crucified because he said he was the son of god so He either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years, have been touched have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think therefore it follows that you believe He was divine? Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that He rose physically from the dead? Yes, yeah. I'm into, uh, I mean, I am no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus? Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do.
1: So Bono said, I've got no problem with miracles, I am one. Uh, Bono is the lead singer of this really old band, but also one of the most famous bands of all time, and it's called U2. Maybe you've heard a few of their songs. I promise you, your parents have heard of their songs. Bono is considered one of the most influential people of the last hundred years, according to Time magazine, which I think is pretty cool. One thing that you might not know about him is he's a person who says, I've got no problem with miracles. I am one. He's someone who seems to buy into the claims that Jesus has made. And I chose a picture of Bono in which he's smoking a cigarette just so that you know that you don't have to be perfect to love Jesus and to know Jesus and to believe in Jesus. A lot of us smoke metaphorical cigarettes, right? We're not perfect. And you might be surprised the kinds of people in the Bible who lack a perfect faith but still somehow believe in this Jesus. I've got a question for you. Who do you think Jesus is? I mean, for real, who is Jesus? Bono made a really good point there when he said, it's a defining question that you could ever ask. Who is he? And I think that it's quite the consideration that we have to make. Either Jesus, according to Bono, and I think he's right, is an absolute madman and nuts, or he really is who he said that he was. So that just relieves us for tonight, right? When we get together for Kairos, we're worshiping someone who's lost their mind or really he is God in the flesh. One or the two, just no big deal, right? Who is Jesus? And maybe you've grown up in Christianity your whole life. Maybe you're showing up at Kairos because you say, I believe in Jesus as the son of God. But have you ever wondered, like, is this all just made up? Have you ever doubted? You might be surprised that all of the different people who doubt... Asking the question, who is God? Asking the question, who is Jesus? Do you have the courage to ask that question? Who is he? Who is Jesus? I grew up in a Christian family. Um, My dad's a pastor. I am a pastor. But I want to tell you this. I'll acknowledge it. Doubt is something that I've dealt with in my life. I have wondered about this. I mean, I've wondered before, does God really love me? I've wondered before, is salvation really for me? I've wondered before, does God even exist? These are real questions that I've asked, and I think that it's important that we're honest about those things. The Bible's honest about people who doubted. Here's a list of doubters in the Bible. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Gideon, David, Elijah, Job, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Peter, Thomas, who we'll talk about tonight, and Paul. Really what I could have done is I could have written every single person, basically, that you read about in the Bible deals with some sort of doubt. Why are these people in the Bible? I mean, the heroes of our faith. And if you don't want to just look at the characters, take a look at the verses that show up in the Bible, There's a book called Psalms, and it's full of all sorts of doubts. And it's okay that we acknowledge this and look at these things. Here are just a few examples of this. In Psalm chapter 22, the author says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound like someone who's really on fire in their faith in that moment? How long, Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me, it says in Psalm 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cries. Help. And then by the end of this prayer... This same psalmist is writing, leave me alone so I can smile again uh, before I am gone and exist no more. Have you ever read a prayer like that where you're like, God, help me, listen to me, and by the end you're like, I just don't even know if you're good anymore. These things show up in the Bible. Psalm chapter 42, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Why am I doubting? In Psalm chapter 89, it says, darkness is my closest friend. You're not. Why do these verses, why do these characters show up in the Bible? I think that the very fact that these things exist in the Bible prove a very important point. Our doubts, your doubts, are safe with God. God knows how we talk when we're desperate. I mean, not only does God welcome our doubts, God gives us the script for doubts in the Bible itself. So, when we want to talk about doubting and how to do it, the first off is not to say, I'm not a doubter. I never would. People in the Bible do a lot. But can you faithfully doubt? Like, how do you faithfully doubt? How do you doubt like the people in the Bible? The first thing that we can do? Let it out. Turn to the person next to you. Maybe pat him on the back and just say, let it out, friend. <laughs> let it out. As one of my mentor pastors has told me, God's a big boy. He can handle your freakouts. He can handle whatever it is that you have to say to God. It seems that God welcomes our doubts, gives a script for our doubts. Our doubts are safe with God. And that is so amazing. It's such good news because we live in a world where there are lots of good things. And I hope your life is full of good things. But the reality is is sometimes our life shows the signs of sad psalms, don't they? And what do we do in those moments when it feels like nobody's showing up for us? We're seeking for someone to trust. We're seeking for someone that would show up for us. We're all looking for that, aren't we? When I was in college, I was on our Warburg College TV news team. That's me right there. (laughs) The fact that you laugh makes me feel really insecure. (laughs) That's okay. And they would always like... I mean, we had these commercials, right? Because they would pour these things into us. Say, you need to be trustworthy if you're going to be on the news. And so we had these, this promo that said, WTV8 News. A news team you can trust. What else would they expect, right? I imagine if I'm reading the teleprompter one night. Yeah, there's a fire downtown. <clears throat> Maybe. <laughs> like, we're looking for somebody that we could trust. We had another promo that said, a news team that cares. Again, what else would you expect? Well, there's a car accident on 30, but eh, I don't really care. Not on my way home. Like, we're looking for someone who would trust, for someone who would care, for someone who would show up. And sometimes in this world, we realize that people aren't showing up for us in those places. We feel alone we're seeking care. We're seeking trust. We're seeking help. We're seeking these things, and we're wondering, is anybody going to show up for us? And it's in those moments of questioning that, of course, we're going to be prone to doubt. And I want you to know that's okay. Turn to the person next to you and say, it's okay. it's okay. It's okay. It really actually is. Here's one of those people in the Bible that we talked about who was dealing with doubt. His name was Thomas. Raise your hand if you've heard of this guy before, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Now, don't you think that's a little unfair? Thomas was a disciple of Jesus, and he had one bad day. Can you imagine if for thousands of years you were characterized by one bad day? Like, what if I stubbed my toe and someone heard me weeping? For the rest of eternity, people just know me as Crying Dan, right? But like this is the way that we categorize Thomas, doubting Thomas. He's probably a good, great disciple of Jesus. And Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas heard about all the things that Jesus predicted about his death and about his resurrection. But after some of Thomas's friends, the disciples, have seen Jesus risen from the dead, he's doubting. He's wondering. He can't wrap his mind around it. The disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says back, I won't believe it unless I see it. Specifically, he says, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now, Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I see it. But the reality is, we believe in things we don't see all the time, don't we? I mean, is that really what Thomas is dealing with? Think about all the different things you learned about in history class that you didn't see. Do you believe that the Civil War happened? If you don't, you're a conspiracy theorist and you need to get that figured out. (laughs) You didn't see it, but it happened because you read about it from eyewitness accounts. Now, Thomas hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus, but he was hearing about it from eyewitness accounts. Did you know that when you pick up your Bible... You are reading from the same eyewitness accounts that we're telling Thomas. Thomas, he really did rise from the dead. And so that does beg a question. Like, is this reliable? Can we trust the eyewitness accounts? I mean, if it really is, you got to see it to believe it, even though we don't have to see everything that we believe. Is it reliable? Can we trust these things? It's really amazing. People have been studying and asking these questions for a very long time. And it shows up in this study called textual criticism. And I think that this is so fascinating. So I want to show it to you all. There's this study called textual criticism. And it it intends to either validate or invalidate ancient texts. Specifically, the way that they do it is they analyze an ancient text by taking a look at what's the earliest copies they have and how many they have. Now, if they have more early copies, the more validated, the more credible that ancient text is. So on the screen behind me, there's a long list of different things that happened throughout history and ancient texts that you may have learned about in history growing up. And no serious historian doubts these things. We've got Caesar's Gallic War. We've got the stories of Plato in the work of Plato. Tacitus, Aristotle, Homer, and the Iliad um, is, is the text that we have originally, what, uh, what was written once upon a time. You can go back another slide still, sorry. And what we have here is you see texts that were written far after those events. And we don't even have a whole lot of manuscripts from them. So you take a look at Caesar's Gallic War, something that we learn about when we're growing up in school. We have 10 manuscripts written 1,000 years after those events. And the earliest manuscript that we have is 900 AD. Now, if we compare that to the New Testament, take a look at this. This is absolutely crazy. Now you can show me the next slide. The New Testament. Written 40 to 100 AD. The earliest copy is 125 AD. So the time span between those two things is 25 to 50 years. How many manuscripts of it do we have? 25,000. It's crazy. Within the field and study of textual criticism, there is simply no other ancient document in all of history that comes even close to the credibility of the New Testament. And I'm not just cherry picking different ancient things that just make the New Testament look a lot better. I mean, like, ancient manuscripts like, the, like Homer's Iliad, which I know is not, like, a true story, but what they're analyzing there is, is that really the original writing that they had? Like, that's the closest that we have. And no serious historian doubts these things. Why? Because that's just how ancient history was written. So I think that sometimes when we're looking at this stuff, we have to be honest. We believe things that we don't see all the time. And sometimes people will say, okay, well, maybe it's not just that I don't see it, but, uh, but, and it's not just that I don't have the eyewitness accounts for it, but, but I don't know, it, it, it's intellectual, right? I mean, my goodness, how could some scholar, how could someone who's worth their salt as an intellectual believe that somebody actually raised from the dead? You might be surprised about that, too. When you look at all of the different intellectual arguments and debates about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, here are four things that are actually undisputed. Did you know this? When it comes to the scholarly debates that are out there, nobody debates that Jesus lived. Nobody debates that Jesus developed a following. No serious historian worth their salt debates that Jesus was killed for claiming to be God. And here's one that might really surprise you. There is no valid argument that Jesus' tomb wasn't empty. No serious historian denies that Jesus' tomb was empty. And throughout all of history in the last 2,000 years, nobody's been able to come up with a valid reason for why his tomb was empty other than the audacious possibility that he rose from the dead. How crazy is that? So I think that if we're going to doubt faithfully and if we're going to do it like with some intellectual integrity, it's okay to say this. Maybe I should doubt my doubts. I get it. Believing that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he rose from the dead, it's an absolutely crazy thing to believe. But we doubt all sorts of things in our life. Are you doubting your doubts based on the legitimacy of history, the legitimacy of of scholarly debates? Are we doubting our doubts? So if we want to faithfully doubt, you, you, you doubt your doubts. We doubt absolutely everything else in our life. What if we doubted our doubts? Now, that's about the end that you're going to hear from me when it comes to, like, defending the faith, right? Talking about it from an eyewitness or intellectual space. Because if you're like me, most of your doubts aren't intellectual. As a pastor, I have a lot of people who talk to me about their doubts. And it is so rare that anybody is struggling with believing in Jesus because of intellectual issues, Our doubts most often are not intellectual. They're personal. It's not, I didn't see it, so I don't believe it. It's not, there's no intellectual credibility to this. It's, God, where were you when I was hurting? Where were you when it felt like my life was falling apart? Where were you? It's personal. Where were you when the sickness wasn't healed? Where were you when I felt rejected? Where were you when my opportunities didn't show up? Where were you when I was left out? Where were you when I failed? Where were you when my parents were splitting up? Where were you? Most of our doubts aren't intellectual. They're personal. So can you blame a guy like Thomas? Yeah, he saw Jesus. Yeah, he witnessed the miracles. Yeah, he heard about Jesus' teaching. Yeah, he heard about Jesus talking about the way that he would die, the way that he would rise from the dead. And yeah, his friends were telling him, we've seen him raised from the dead. We've seen him alive, but can you blame him? It got personal for him. I mean, think about who Thomas was and think about the life that he had lived. Thomas was a Jewish man. And Jewish people in those days believed that there was a coming Messiah. And they believed that this Messiah would redeem them and save them and deliver them. That's literally what Messiah means, deliverer. And this Messiah was going to deliver them from the oppression that they had been facing living in under the Roman Empire. And Thomas believed that here comes this Jesus character who I believe is the Messiah and he's saying sorts of things, he's gaining power, and it seems like he has a certain amount of influence that might actually change my circumstances, He's really going to set us free. He really is the Messiah. He's really going to deliver us. He's really going to do what he said he's going to do. When Jesus was uh, having his last meal with his disciples, he made this promise to them. And I wonder how much pride it it filled Thomas with. Jesus says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. I will be there for you. And then all of a sudden, things change pretty quickly, don't they? Jesus says that, and Thomas is filled with joy. Yes, you're going to be there for me. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about an arrest. He starts talking about betrayal. He starts talking about dying. Where's this going? What's happening? You can't do that. You're supposed to be there for me. You're supposed to save me in my moments of disaster. You're supposed to show up for me when it looks like life is falling apart. Why are you letting life fall apart? Have you ever asked that to God? It feels like you're letting my life fall apart. Why? I think that this is an okay moment to just pause the sermon. Have you allowed yourself to bring those doubts to God? Have you allowed yourself to let it out? Have you allowed yourself to have conversations with the one that you're doubting? I mean, if you doubt me, I hope that you take it to me, right? If you're doubting God, take it to him right now. Where are you? Why aren't you showing up for me if it doesn't feel like you are? I don't feel very loved right now. Matthew is gonna play a song and it has some really honest and real lyrics. And as he sings this, I invite you to sit in whatever posture feels comfortable. Maybe you'll sit with your eyes closed. Maybe you'll sit staring up. I, I don't know, whatever feels comfortable, whatever's right. And as you hear these lyrics, maybe there are lyrics that you've wanted to sing out before. And I invite you, don't run away from these doubts. Let them out to the God who says they're safe with him. Let them out to the God who can handle them. Jesus, I have my doubts. Can you handle them? Will you hear them? Give yourself that moment. Give yourself that freedom to do this.
2: Can you reach me here in the silence? Singing these broken songs, looking for the light for so long. But the pain goes on and on. gone mad Jesus feels like the world's in pieces I'm sure you've got your reasons but I've got my doubts Jesus, I've got my doubts When everything right for you is right feels wrong and all of my beliefs feels gone and the darkness in my heart is so strong. Can you reach me here in the silence singing these broken songs? Looking for the life so long, but the pain goes on and on and on. And my heart is so strong Can you reach me here in the silence Singing these broken songs Looking for the light for so long But the pain goes on and on and on Can you reach me here in the silence
1: feel like you're living in that silence and you're wondering is God going to reach me? Jesus you you know that I've tried but I'm kind of starting to feel these levels of disappointment and I'm beginning to wonder if you're going to show up for me it's interesting it's in these moments of agony that doubt screams we've lost the ability to trust we've lost the ability to believe that somebody would show up for us Jesus said to them, I will not abandon you. I will come for you, he said. Would he? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt lost? I mean, by all accounts, it looks like Thomas has totally given up, right? Like it looks like he's done looking, but he's not done looking. He's just still looking for the same thing he was always looking for. He's just looking for it in something else. Like maybe you're telling yourself, "Okay, well I'm done looking for God and I'm just done looking." No, we're all still looking for that security, aren't we? We're all still looking for that trust. But the person that we're looking for to find that, it really matters what we're looking for to find that in. It really matters. Have you ever been looking for the wrong thing? And maybe not even necessarily the wrong thing, but something that's not the most important thing. Do you remember the first time that you got lost if you've ever been lost? Just how scary that was. I think I was like six years old, and I was in Walmart with my, uh, with my mom, with my sister. She's in that little, like, scooter seat, you know? And um, And in my mind, what was going to make me happy—you can go back a slide. You don't have to show those yet. In my mind, what was going to make me happy for that day was if I found roller skates, right? We're going around Walmart, and, like, that's what I really wanted, you know? And so, like, I run away, right? I don't realize that I am, but I'm seeking these things, right? A good thing. But in my mind on that day, it was the most important thing. So I'm seeking them, I'm looking, and eventually I, I find them. And as I find them and I turn around, I'm about to ask my mom, hey, can I get these? I realize I don't know where she is, right? Sometimes when we're so focused on finding the thing that's not the most important thing, we actually end up lost ourselves. I'm telling myself, I'm going to find that thing and that's what's going to make me happy and that's what's going to make me content. But the reality is my soul actually really needs someone. And I can tell myself, you know, I don't believe this anymore. I can tell myself God's not going to show up for me. I can tell myself I'm going to walk away from this. I can tell myself I'm going to find peace and security in something else. And maybe I'll find those different things. But my soul's not going to find what it really wants because my soul will not find in those things what it really needs. Someone to love me. Someone to care for me. Someone to show up for me. Someone who's willing to get personal with me. Someone who doesn't give up on me. It's incredible, as I was having that experience, when you're six years old, your imagination goes to all sorts of different things. So I'm thinking, okay, I need to find my way to the customer service desk so I can fill out an application so I can afford an apartment for myself because I'll never see my family again. And then I just... I don't know, like the moment that I started to look for my mom, I look up and I see her running around the aisle. Danny, slow down, right? The moment that I looked up to try to find what I really needed, I found that she was already looking for me. I'm only telling you that because it reminds me of what God's done for us. Like the moments. You look up and realize, I haven't found what I'm really looking for in this thing that I thought was going to bring me pleasure and satisfaction, and now I'm feeling left agonized again. And it's in that moment of loneliness where we stop wondering, am I going to find what I'm really looking for? And instead, we start to wonder, is anybody going to find me? Is anybody going to care enough to look for me? But sometimes... We have this reminder and this realization that when we look up and when we realize I need something else, we find the thing that we've always been looking for was already looking for us. Countless times throughout my life, my mom has shown up for me, right? Like moments where I never even expected it. When I was in college, within six days, two guys that I went to high school with passed away. And I remember just being so sad and so frustrated and so confused. And I was sitting in a classroom after a night broadcasting the news, and we were having our post news meeting. And I'm sitting in a desk, and I pull out my phone, and I'm going to text my mom because I'm like, I, I need something right now. I'm, I'm just feeling very lost, I'm feeling very confused, very frustrated. I send my mom some text and I hit send and all of a sudden I hear a ding from outside in the hallway and my mom is sitting in the lobby. I went to college like two and a half hours away from where I grew up. She just showed up. It reminds me of Romans chapter eight that tells us there is nothing in life or death that could ever separate us from the power of God's love for us. My mom wasn't gonna forget me. She always shows up for me. Here's a couple pictures of us. I think you saw a little bit of these earlier. Like there's just something powerful when you have that kind of trust and you know that person's going to show up for you. And it's just so amazing when that person shows up in the most unsuspecting moments. People have been dealing with these sorts of doubts, wondering if anybody would show up for them for a very long time. This isn't anything new. So if you're dealing with that, please know there is company in your misery. In the book of Isaiah, thousands of years ago, God's people, the Israelites. They're saying, I don't feel very loved right now. I don't feel like you're there for me. Specifically, they say, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. Again, you might be surprised what shows up in Scripture. And how is God going to respond? Is he going to rebuke them? Is he going to punish them? Is he going to smite them for doubting who he is? I mean, my goodness, he's been faithful to them. He's always shown up for them. What's their problem? But God responds like a good parent. He says, never. And he brings up this beautiful metaphor. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Even if that were possible, I would not forget you. Think about the love of a good mother, right? Right? I mean, specifically, think about the love of a good mother who's just welcomed their child into this world. What can that baby do for the mom, right? And I know some people say, well, this baby is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It just, it gives me life. No, it doesn't. You gave it life, and it's feeding off of you. It can't do anything for you, right? Wah! Feed me! Wah! I mean, like, it's precious. It's cute. It's the miracle of life. Also, probably a little bit of a hassle. But think about a mom's love that doesn't need anything in return, but is so committed and so giving and so unconditional. And everything in the mother's being is just absolutely focused on giving to this child. And God is telling us that even the love of a mother cannot compare to the love that he has for you. Quite the metaphor. But it feels like that's just talk, right? And love is more than talk. Love is action. I need to see something. And so God changes the metaphor. He says to his people, see, I have written your name on my hands. Now, in those days, it would not have been uncommon for a servant to have their master's names tattooed on their hands. The Bible doesn't condone things like that, but it describes things like that. But never would a master have their servants' names tattooed on their hands. And God is saying to his people, that's just what it's like with me and you. But look a little bit deeper at the metaphor that God is using here. He's not just saying tattooed. He's not even just saying written. The actual word in the Hebrew used here in Isaiah chapter 49, when God is describing his love for his people and how personal he wants to get for them, the word is engraved. And how did they engrave things in those days? You didn't bring out your laptop to start to type. You didn't even bring out a pen and a piece of paper. Instead, you used a hammer and a spike. Now just imagine someone willingly out of love taking a spike through their hand for someone they just want to show up for. You hear the metaphor and it's like awful. It's terrible. It's horrifying. And yes, it is. And it's exactly what happened. Because many, many, many years later, there's our friend Thomas who's feeling like God doesn't love him very much who's feeling like his friend Jesus has deserted him. I mean, follow the story of Thomas. What do you think he did after Jesus had left the Last Supper and he's betrayed and he's arrested? Jesus had just promised him, I will not abandon you. I will come for you. I will be there for you. And then Thomas sees Jesus leave the dinner to go pray in a garden. And I wonder if he maybe tried to watch from a distance, right? And he sees Jesus getting betrayed. He sees Jesus getting beaten. He sees Jesus getting arrested. And I don't know whether he saw it or he just heard about it. But as he sees the spikes going into Jesus' hands, ending his Messiah's life for all intent and purposes, it is ending Thomas' life too. What do you mean you're going to be there for me? I got to go. You are not who you said you were. My life is falling apart, and you're gone. Goodbye, God." So Thomas's friends come up to him to say, "We've seen him. He's, he's risen from the dead." And Thomas is saying things like, "No, I'd have to see it to believe it." I need some certainty in my life, for once, please. And maybe you've felt like that before too. And what is he telling his friends? I need to see it to believe it. I need to be able to place my hands in his side. I need to be able to put my fingers in his wounds in his hands. That's what I would need. One day after Jesus has risen from the dead, Thomas shows up in a room and there in front of him is Jesus Christ. And how will Jesus handle Thomas's doubts? He won't rebuke him. He won't belittle him. He doesn't even question him. He says, Thomas, look at my hands. How did he know? How did he know? that Thomas had just spent the last three days telling people he's dead? How did he know that Thomas had just spent the last week telling people, I'm not going to believe that he rose from the dead unless I see and touch his hands? How did he know? Because that security and that trust that Thomas had always been looking for was already with Thomas. Jesus was listening. He was showing up for him. He was following him. He was finding Thomas. And you know what the craziest part about this text is to me? In John chapter 20, Thomas had been saying, I want to be able to touch the real, risen, physical Jesus. I need to see him. I need to touch him. And intellectually, I will be healed and I will know what he's done for me. Nowhere in the text does it say that he touched Jesus. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of other places in the New Testament that talk about after Jesus had risen from the dead, he is this physical body. He eats, people gather around him, they're touching him, they're bumping into him. He's a physical risen body from the dead. But Thomas doesn't do it. Instead, Thomas falls to his knees and he says something that up until this point in the book of John, nobody has looked at Jesus in the face and done For the very first time in the book of John, someone looks at Jesus in the face and it's Thomas the doubter. And Thomas the doubter says, you're God. Why? I mean, it was right in front of him. Why didn't he touch him? Why did he just fall to his knees? Why is it that now he's believing you're God? You showed up for me. You're here for me. You love me. You care for me. You didn't leave me. You didn't abandon me. Why is it now? I think that it's because Jesus' wounds aren't just physical evidence that he's alive, his wounds are personal evidence that he loves you. It was true for Thomas, and it is true for you. So, how do we faithfully doubt? Let it out, doubt your doubts. And then look at his hands. If you want all the facts in the world, that's fine. And they will inform you. But the love of Jesus will actually build a trust in you. That comes by bringing our doubts to him. And it comes by looking at his hands. One day we will actually be able to see, feel, and touch Jesus. But in this moment, when all we can do is fall to our knees and say, your God, it's still enough. Because you have a God who says, look at my hands. I could never, ever forget you.